This podcast is brought to you by Western Reformed Seminary, the Reformed Seminary of the Great Pacific Northwest. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm, I was about to say, I'm pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, it's been a while. It's been three years. I, I want to explore that at some point. Why, you know, you went back there. There's got to be something Freudian about that, at, Carl. Uh, true. I, I think it's, uh, yeah, the, the deep fears that occasionally bubble up from the <laughs> unconsciousness of go, going back into pastoral ministry. I am not a pastor no. uh, anymore. But you are an elder. I am a minister. We, yeah. we call them ministers, oh, ministers in the OPC. In the OPC. We're, we're, we're a proper church oh, that has okay. proper you know, language to refer oh, well, to. That makes sense. Teaching elder <laughs> business. Uh, I'm a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in wonderful Western mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. I'm here with my friend Todd Pruitt. T-E, or teaching <laughs> elder, in the Presbyterian Church in America, in the congregation that meets as Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in another very, very beautiful part Indeed. of the country. And to add to the two denominations I've already mentioned, we are privileged and delighted today to have as our guest uh, Benjamin Fisher. Benjamin has a PhD from the University of, in England we would say Notre Dame, here you say Notre Dame, I think. Mm-hmm. He is... He is a missionary priest of the Anglican Church of Rwanda and serves as Rector of Christ the Redeemer, a congregation of the Anglican Church in North America, the ACNA, again, a great denomination, Mm -hmm. uh, in Nampa, Idaho. He's also Associate Professor at Northwest Nazarene University, where he teaches literary history. Great to have you on the program, Ben. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Well, we want to talk to you today about a little book you've published recently. The title is Being a Pastor. The subtitle is Pastoral Treatise of John Wycliffe. Uh, wonder if you would speak uh, to our listeners uh, to begin with about who exactly was John Wycliffe and why on earth should we be interested in him? Most, uh, you know, most Protestants are aware of Luther, mm-hmm. Calvin, 16th century, et cetera, et cetera. You're talking about a guy from the 14th century here. Why would Wycliffe, a pre-Reformation figure, why would he be of interest to uh, Christians at the beginning of the, Protestant Christians at the beginning of the 21st century? Right. Um, If Protestants have heard of Wycliffe, it's generally associated with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Bible translators took, took his name because he was the first person to spearhead a translation project of the whole Bible into English. He didn't personally translate uh, the whole thing, but he oversaw that translation. And uh, his project then was taken up 100 years later by uh, Tyndale. And then 
uh, of course, fed into the Reformation moment in England. So I think that's probably where most listeners, if they've heard the name, uh, or they might have heard the heritage, there's kind of genealogy of ideas from Luther, who read Jan Hus, who was a reader of Wycliffe. So many of the ideas on um, rejecting transubstantiation that uh, Luther read in Hus came from John Wycliffe, uh, or emphasis on the accessibility uh, of God's word to uh, all believers. One didn't need to be a clergy person in order to receive the word. That God's word's perspicuous. So that's uh, that's probably one of the ways most Protestants have heard of his name, but he was a towering figure in the 14th century. Foremost philosopher at Oxford. He was advisor first to King Edward III uh, and then to the premier ruler after Edward's death, his, one of his sons, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, who became Wycliffe's patron. He, John of Gaunt was the most powerful baron in the 14th century. Uh, during uh, Richard II's rule, he was, Richard II was uh, young when he came to the throne, and John of Gaunt early dominated the politics. So Wycliffe was consulted on theological matters. He became one of the chaplains to uh, John of Gaunt. He's connected with the circle around Geoffrey Chaucer as well. Uh, mm. So th- there's this household uh, where John of Gaunt is patron, really influential in politics, in philosophy, and of course, theology. So w- Wycliffe is one of, he's one of the central characters in the middle of the 14th century. Benjamin, as, as we think about how um, you know, Wycliffe uh, came to an end, he, he died before they could kill him, I guess you could say. Um, they did mm-hmm. dig him up. Although they did burn him and throw him in the River Swift, I think. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's right. exactly. I wonder if you would help our listeners understand why uh, the the particulars of of Wycliffe's thought, which which ended up inspiring the the the, the more concentrated Reformation a hundred years later, why his affirmation of the clarity or perspicuity of Scripture, um, and you know maybe for Protestants more obviously why his problems with transubstantiation that that would make more sense I think to Protestants why that would put him in danger, but but help our listeners understand why his position on scripture put him in such a precarious position so that even, you know, after he died, his remains would be dug up and and formally uh, desecrated and burned because of that. Right. Right. Um, I think the, the principal offending move for him was using the vernacular that um, all of his, all of his scholarly writing um, speculations and uh, arguments were they were very much in uh, mainstream theological discussion at Oxford, at Cambridge, at Paris, Avignon. And as a, a doctor of divinity, he was allowed to make arguments that were uh, against canon law. He could, mm-hmm. he could put forward positions um, and then debate them. The move that got him into trouble, that really got his, his, all of his followers into trouble, a movement that came to be called Lollardy, uh, or sometimes they went by Wycliffeite mm-hmm. uh, as a pejorative, uh, 
was to then begin making those arguments in the vernacular. So even this, this took place even in the university towns is some of his um, disciples began preaching and teaching in English rather than in Latin. Latin was the, the discursive language of the day. So to, to begin speaking those arguments in English was to assume that English was a fit vehicle for this, the highest subject matter. And when, when that move is done, that is making those arguments accessible to lay people. Right. Yeah. And uh, that is the Protestant heritage, right? Is that this mm -hmm. God's word is, it, it should be accessible to lay people. Um, and then to go ahead and do that is the mm -hmm. offending move. And that's where uh, uh, bishops became uncomfortable with him and began to bring up charges. But that's tied in with his view of, of God's word is how can God's people know God without the word? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so would you say, is it fair to say then that uh, one of the, the things that really got him in trouble was the fact that he took these ideas out of um, a scholarly, out of a context of scholarly speculation and moved it almost to a point of instruction and advocacy for the layperson? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's worth, I think, drawing attention, Benjamin, to the, the potent similarities between the uh, 14th century and, uh, and today. Uh, you know, the, the world of Wycliffe, Wycliffe did not live to see this, of course, but the world of Wycliffe is cruising towards the crisis of the papacy at the beginning of the 15th century, where you have three popes and you have tremendous struggles within church and empire as to how to solve that. You're living in the, the sort of the backwash of the, uh, of the Great Plague, the Black Plague. Uh, talk for us a, a little bit about the, the atmosphere, mm. uh, the milieu in which Wycliffe is operating. You want to come to the, the specific concerns of the book, the, you know, his, his concept of the pastorate, but obviously pastorates don't take place in a vacuum. They're set against a, a cultural background. Talk to us a bit about the, uh, the tensions, the struggles, the flux of the latter part of the 14th century. Absolutely. Uh, I want to say thank you for your, your recent book uh, on the modern self. I, I, I use that, your text, as the second, as part of a, a second half of a course in which we begin to trace these movements uh, and the breakdown of tradition. Um, I, I begin that course in the Middle Ages and the, the heritage of breakdown, I, I begin with the, the plague. Mm. And so how I understand that is that uh, Wycliffe and uh, all of Europe at the time assumed the body politic, assumed Christendom, uh, a united, um, united nations uh, under the rule of God with the prince or the ruler at the head of a body the, of the nation. The church doing its part, doing the work of, of spiritual, really being the soul of, of the political body, the barons doing uh, work of ruling under the prince, uh, the, the peasantry raising the food, uh, seeing that the society could survive physically. So all those working together produced a, a functional, peaceful body. And the plague disrupted everything just everything. Uh, 
estimates are between a third to a half of the population of the entire world died. And it's verified in Europe. Um, some, some towns, Florence, for example, lost 75% of the population. So, I mean, we've, we've just come through a, a pandemic where I think the, the rate is between 1% roughly. So, yeah. And, and that's shaken us. So just imagine half of the population of the nation dying, half of your village, half of your city. And that disrupted all of the institutions, disrupted the class, class structure, left gaping holes. And, but it also, uh, in a people, in a society that assumed the sovereignty of God, they responded in kind of one of two ways, either threw themselves into judgment recognizing, okay, we, we are under judgment. And so uh, let's, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Uh, or another response was a penitence and a desire to uh, discover how can we please this God that we've offended. And so part of that was recognizing the church has has let us down. They haven't been holy or we wouldn't be under this kind of judgment. Um, so they went looking for causes uh, of this judgment. And um, that's the climate in which Wycliffe is, he, he was in university at that time, 1349, he was at Oxford and uh, sorting through how do we please a holy God? And he came quickly to the conclusion that the people, not just the clergy, but all of the people need to be right before God. How can they do that without God's word? So it, it was that climate of uh, instability and uh, recognizing that holiness of the laity matters that he began to push towards um, getting the Bible in lay people's hands. And it needed to be in a language they could understand. So this translation project. So the, the latter half of the 14th century is a recovery period from this disruption. Lots of social mobility for the first time. First uh, formation of a, a, an incipient middle class. About 90% of the population were serfs. They were essentially slaves tied to the land. With these gaping holes, in the social structure, they could, for the first time, charge for their labor. Hmm. So you get the, the first motions of a middle class. And it's, it's among that group, especially, and the lower, lower nobility, that there's interest, a special interest in taking responsibility for one's own spiritual life. Now, this is going to have, obviously, an impact on the nature of pastoral ministry, the nature of the pastoral office, um, which is, which is significant at that time. You know, in our days you have as many different kinds of definitions of a pastor and descriptions of what a pastor should be as there are denominations. But at that time, what Wycliffe is prescribing for the people, um, access to the word of God, um, is going to have direct impact on how the, the, the role of the ministers is, is understood, which again is going to, put him in tension with, um, with, with some folks, what would mm -hmm. be some of the key, um, features of, of Wycliffe's understanding mm -hmm. of, of the pastoral office, given, given what he now comes to understand 
um, about the, the needs of the people? That's a great question. And the background situation against which he reacts is a high clericalism. What I mean by that is a, a view of the pastor as one who, whose primary role is to gather the people for the sacraments. Yeah. And a, but a typical layperson would be uh, fearful, um, fearful to come to the table because in order to receive, they would have to confess. Um, you, you couldn't receive communion unless you had confessed in the two weeks prior. That's by canon law. Oh, okay. So they would have to confess, um, but that confession would bring with it penance. And typically that penance had a financial component or it would require right. an, an act that would be publicly shameful. Yeah. So you've got two disincentives to move to confession in order to receive. So a local priest's job is to gather people who really don't want to gather <laughs> mm -hmm. or are hesitant about it. Um, and even then, depending where they are in Europe uh, and the diocesan rules, they might not even be uh, allowed to receive at all that only the priest receives. So the, this high clericalism views the priest as doing, um, doing some hocus pocus, um, right. at, at the table, just side note, the origin of hocus pocus <laughs> comes from the, the priest lifting the bread and saying hoc est corpus meum to mm -hmm. people that don't, don't understand Latin and are hearing something like hocus, 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 <laughs> um, and so he's doing something magical. The, the bread is becoming the body of Christ. So that's the background. Wycliffe's move is to train up through the universities, Oxford, Cambridge, train up what he called poor preachers. And these were committed to an apostolic model where they were to be content with food and clothing. And yeah. their, their primary role was not to preside at the table. Their primary role was to speak the word of God, feed the people on the word. So he shifted, even within a liturgical service, you've got the preaching of the word and you've got the, the table. His emphasis shifted to the word as making the reality of the table significant. Right. Um, and, that's a, and that's a significant shift for the huge. church at that point. Yeah. Yes. Do you think that he believed in justification by grace through faith? That's an interesting question. Hmm. I, I do think that, but he never used those terms mm -hmm. um yeah he certainly emphasizes um two pieces of that namely that simply being a baptized member of the visible church does not make one a member of the eternal kingdom of god right right and that proper true receiving of uh the sacrament is done by faith uh, that's that's definitely a piece of his explicit teaching. So um, emphasis on faith, absolutely, and that the evidences of a, a life that has been redeemed are uh, fruit 
spiritual fruit, mm-hmm. a, a life that exhibits yeah. faith. Um, so, and these are yeah. again, these are these are significant theological innovations at that time. You know, for us, it's kind of the air we we breathe. But right. at that time, you're doing something pr- pretty pretty dangerous at that time to begin to suggest these things. Absolutely. Uh, and in some way, you know, you're you're diminishing, as it were, I guess, uh, the power of the magisterium, at least to a certain extent, by, by suggesting those things. Certainly, and they they felt it. Yeah. They his interlocutors recognized that when you state that God's word can be understood, that that it yeah. has its own clarity, and it can be received by an uneducated layperson mm-hmm. in in their language. That that does remove that uh, removes the role of priest as mediator of God's word. Yeah. yeah, would you say that that might be the most significant thing that that Luther drew from Wycliffe this this issue of the uneducated layperson being able to read and basically understand the word of God, or would it have more to do with the mass? I think it has the the most. The piece of all this that sort of holds it all together, particularly for Wycliffe, and is, is certainly taken up by Luther, is that Jesus is the word, and that the word has been given to Christians, mm-hmm. and to all Christians. So, if a person has God's Holy Spirit in them, they, the word is in them. So, when they take up his word, there's a resonance in them by the spirit of with what they're reading. So whether they're reading it, whether they're hearing it from a pastor, it, it's an re-emphasis on the Holy spirit in the believers. And that's got all sorts of ramifications, right? It, it, it's got ramifications for your vocation for equal standing in the, in the congregation it does change the notion of what a pastor is. A pastor is one who's set apart, uh, consecrated for a task, but there's not an ontological difference in that person. Um, so, uh, Wycliffe is, he is pretty explicit about this, that his system, whether it's his system of, uh, Augustinian realism, his metaphysics, or he's talking about the word hermeneutics, or, um, even his teachings on civil dominion, they all come back to the notion that a, a true Christian has God's Holy Spirit, has God's word living in them. Uh, and that is a, there's a democratic uh, impulse there. You yourself are a, a pastor, Ben, uh, in, as we've mentioned, in the ACNA. As you look at Wycliffe's work, I mean, you've translated these pastoral treaties of his. Uh, where has Wycliffe had a specific influence on you? I'm assuming that the reason you've translated Wycliffe is you think that he has something positive to say to to pastors today, where would you highlight in your own life and ministry at Wycliffe as having had a, a specific influence or a very helpful uh, impact upon you? I, I love that question. Um, so as I became a pastor, I was looking around for models, of course, and as we all do, and looking in books for guidance. And I was finding most of the books that were handed to me um, came from celebrity pastors or came from contexts that I I could not relate to at all with goals I couldn't relate to. 
So uh, I began to look back, um, mm. read old, older pastoral treatises, and these works had not been translated. Um, I, I knew of them. Uh, I got into Wycliffe about 20 years ago as an undergraduate, and I, I knew he'd had a lot to say about what made a good pastor. So I, I have increasingly come to the conviction that we need prophetic mirrors, um, whether that is um, in another culture. So I, I want to pay a lot of attention to what God is doing through his church in the global south. And I want to pay attention to what he's done in his church in the past. And so I found in Wycliffe this doggedness about adhering to God's word, um, reading God's word with the help of church fathers. I mean, he, he's constantly uh, referencing Augustine and Jerome, uh, Gregory. Um, so paying attention to how God's word has been understood, uh, but completely submitted to the word and with a willingness to confront his own society. So, I mean, that's a, a, to me in his character and he doesn't, he, he does it in the, the idiom and with the tone of the 14th century schools, which is kind of, it's, it's sharp. There's, there's a satirical mm -hmm. edge, um, which would be familiar to Reformation readers as well. Still mm -hmm. strong there. He's very happy to call the Pope Antichrist, and <laughs> compare him to an ape. Uh, he, he does frequently. <laughs> but the courage, the courage to look at the society, identify where it's off track, and, and to assert confidently that there is a design, that uh, God has designed a kingdom of peace. We're moving towards that. And we can, in fact, participate in it. That's a great yeah. uh, theme that's, that's throughout his work. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in, in those ways and some others, as I think you demonstrate, uh, there is a uh, many points of continuity that pastors today can, uh, can identify uh, with this man from uh, long ago in, a, in, a, in some ways very different culture. And yet there are things that have not changed mm -hmm. as we've as, as you've kind of pointed out today and so it's a reminder again um of of the calling uh, of the pastor and if you are a pastor we we would encourage you to get a hold of uh this this book you'll find um i think refreshment and encouragement and challenge um, in it for your vocation and for your call um, the book is being a pastor pastoral treatises of john wickliffe and uh, the translator and editor has been our guest, Ben Fisher, um, from up in the Pacific Northwest region. Yes, in Idaho. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, part of uh, the ACNA. He's the rector of uh, Christ uh, the Redeemer uh, ACNA uh, Church in uh, in Nampa, Idaho. And again, I think he's done a fine service to the church in taking uh, these uh, treatises and, and bringing them into our language. And again, one of the things I think that's so helpful of it is we know the name Wycliffe. Um, and of course, Martin Luther, a hundred years later, eclipses him, and some of that's appropriate. And yet, at the same time, we we forget that uh, Luther had a forerunner um, whose work very much uh, laid the path for Luther's own work. And um, for that reason alone, Wycliffe is worth uh, looking at. But you were one thing I had not seen before until 
um, I read your book was uh, the contributions he made that are still so relevant in terms of the pastor's office. And so uh, it's, it's a, it's a great contribution for that. And we're glad you did it. Thank you. Well, if you, if you're one of our listeners and you'd like to um, enter to win a copy of this fine book, then you can go to mortificationofspin.org. That's our website. You can enter to win a copy of this book. You can also find links to other helpful resources. And while you're there, if you are so moved, you can make a contribution to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which would certainly be greatly appreciated. Um, our thanks to uh, Benjamin Fisher, our guest uh, today. And uh, thank you listeners for being with us. And we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Okay, Mark, Recording you ready, Recording in progress. Perfect. Right. We're now legal, now that we know we're <laughs> being right. recorded. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Benjamin, well, we are being recorded. It's not live. If, if there's something you say that you think, of, man, I wish I'd not said mm. that or wish I'd said that better, <laughs> we, we, can, we can handle that. It so. has happened. Yeah. yeah. Todd is always messing up. And it's embarrassing, really. But, yeah. <laughs> Western Reformed Seminary is a Bible-believing Presbyterian seminary in the great Pacific Northwest. Their mission is to prepare church leaders who are spiritually grounded, knowledgeable, capable, and dedicated through solid theological training. Academic degrees such as Masters of Biblical or Theological Studies, as well as the Masters of Christian Ministry, with emphasis in Biblical Counseling, Missions, or Church Ministry. Along with degree programs, students may take a class as a standalone for credit or audit. Although residency classes offer the best learning environment, Western Reform Seminary offers interactive, synchronous classes for students unable to attend in person, as well as concentrated classes in January and May every year. For more information, visit wrs.edu or email registrar at wrs.edu. Western Reformed Seminary.